0: i've never been this encouraged i've never been this it's like i can it's like i can feel just the moving of god hallelujah thank you jesus this is an old book but i just wanted to read a couple of things to you tonight i want to tell you how much god is doing i just and uh, we're going to have a video tonight but we're going to cut the after part short so we'll have time for this uh but Oh yeah, children, you want to go? <laughs> Hallelujah! I forgot y'all. I just get into it, you know. Oh, cause so this is talking about how 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 big and and how the body of Christ is multiplying. And this is this book was written in two thousand five, called Mega Shift. And I'm totally impressed with the book. Campus Crusade for Christ now estimates we'll see a billion new converts in the next ten years. Well. Hallelujah. This has been 10 years. Hallelujah. My numbers project a net growth of the body of Christ at a billion and a half. But anyways, you slice it, the kingdom is expanding at a heart-pounding pace. I'm not being triumphalistic or arrogant here. I'm just reporting the numbers. From 1970 to 2000, core apostolics doubled every nine years. And he's not even talking about churches that are not, you know they're just not even really believing or you know he's talking when he says core apostolics. he's talking about charismatics pentecostals and uh you know maybe some fired up evangelicals but those that are just dead dry and 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 doing nothing he's not talking about those um from our vantage point let's see this is the biggest mega shift in history can you think of any time when over a billion people eagerly changed their lives and loyalties in one generation? It, within a few years, at current rates, the characteristic of whole nations will be transformed. Majorities will come, minorities, and vice versa. Hallelujah. And then over here, he said, There's never been a time like this. In 1960, there were 24 non believers for every believer in the world. Now there are only six. And that was in 2005. So I'd like to know how many there are now. He needs to write another book, don't he? Um, In 1960, even the strongest part of the church was growing as slowly as the rest of the world. Now we're growing almost seven times as fast as the population is growing. Do you see the picture? Can you feel in your spirit the excitement of what the Lord is doing? Back in the golden days of early Christianity, we were outnumbered by 360 pagans for every believer. I don't know what the golden days were, but back in the early days, I guess. That's pretty intimidating. Today's one to six ratio of born again believers to everyone else is much less daunting. The family of Jesus Christ is growing so fast that if our growth simply continues at today's pace, most of us living today will see the fulfillment of Revelation 11, 15. Now are the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah and he shall reign forever and ever. Statistically, as I said, we're heading for the grand finale by 2032 or so. But of course, that's just a fragile projection. What's more definite is you've joined a transformed army that is 707 million strong and adding more every second. This is the most massive event that you will ever touch your life. Don't be a spectator. The Father loves you, so go to Him directly and ask Him, Lord, reveal to me any sins or bad attitudes that might be keeping me from fully functioning as a member of your team. Show me the purposes and immediate plans you have for me immediate plans. Hallelujah. And as they say in baseball, tell him, put me in the lineup. In this chapter, I've tried to give you a hint about the tremendous future that awaits you. I know it sounds overwhelming, but you won't have to go unprepared. For the first time ever, we now have the ways and means to finish quickly the job that Christ gave us to do. So I wanted to kind of do an in time, I wanted to do an update tonight, because it's been like three weeks since I, and I just wanted to, to let y'all know how big what God's doing in the world. Uh, there's 3,026 people groups in the world that have never, that are uh, not reached. They're unreached people groups. And uh, they define an unreached people. They The criteria for being an unreached people group is no Bible. They have no Bible. There's not a believer in the tribe or community or wherever it's at. And there's no body of Christ. In other words, there's no church to go to. And that, if, if, uh, if you meet any one of those criteria, they consider you an unreached people group. And there's 3,026. And um, this is an exciting thing. I think this is very exciting. I, want, I like for churches or people that God is blessed with wealth to use it for the kingdom of God. And so there's a church, uh, Rick Warren, and he and another minister, uh, an evangelist, uh, have set themselves to go after those 3,026 unreached people groups. And I'm like, yay, yay. Because when God makes you, if God makes them a mega church, it's not so they can be in Charisma Magazine as one of the top 20 churches. And, you know, no, they should be taking because fi- tremendous finances come because of being a mega church, and they need to be doing something with it. We need to be hearing you know uh, we need to we need to hear what what is First Baptist doing? They got this huge church down there i've never heard anything it's, i mean and i'm not ashamed to say that i've never heard of them doing anything and uh th- just bring them if you think that's bad, bring them in here, and I'll tell them myself that they need to do something It's time for us to stand up and be heard. But I wanted to say also from Pastor, what he read about everything Pastor Moss has said. Man, we are privileged. We are privileged. We are called out. We are set apart. We're going to watch our video tonight. It's number six. We're on number six. And this is about hosting a move of God, and it just keeps getting richer and richer. This one is rich. It's about 26 minutes.
1: Today, we're going to look at the ultimate prototype for normal Christianity. This has been a central theme for me in in my teaching focus since 1979. I had an unusual encounter with the Lord in May of 79. It shifted everything in my approach to Scripture. I'm not going to go into it now, except this is part of the product of what happened for me in that encounter, so take your Bibles, open to Second Samuel chapter six. 2 Samuel chapter six. If we were to do a more extensive uh, study, uh, I would take you into First Chronicles fifteen as well, as that is is uh, kind of a sister passage. It's running in tandem uh, with this particular record. One of the things that that I love so much about revival and about just the moves of God. To be honest with you, part of what I like is the fact that they're unpredictable and they're messy. Um, I'm suspicious of anything that's too squeaky clean. You know, and to me it's kind of funny when somebody says, well, this is out of order. Yeah, have you ever seen a child born? <laughs> According to God, that's that's perfect order. According to the kid that's screaming... And the mess that's created all around the room, it doesn't look like great order to me, but it's 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 an order that produces life. All divine order is for the purpose of life. It is not for the purpose of structure. It never serves itself. It is always because it gives place to the... It's the most full expression of life. That's what order is for. All right? So in this... Uh, great outpouring of the Spirit that we are experiencing and are going to be see increasing. Uh, My theme verse is um, about the oxen, that where there's no oxen, the manger is clean, but much increase comes from the strength of the ox. So if you're going to have a move of God, get a shovel because you will need that to stay up with what God is doing because it's just automatic that messes get created. How many of you you have already, you've already been, become aware of that one? And sometimes we're the ones that make the mess, which is real embarrassing, but we'll, uh, we'll just kind of leave that one there. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let me tell you what happened here. When Saul was king, he really lost regard for the presence of the Lord. He lost value for the presence. The presence was this golden box with cherubim on it, uh, rings on the side, long poles. They would cover it so nobody could look upon it, but it was this as it, as it would travel. But here's this Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God would rest. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, the box was three elements. The tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the almond rod of Aaron, a dead rod that budded, in it actually came to life in God's presence, and a jar of manna. The Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of Testimony. What is on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two cherubim, but what is between the two? Does anybody remember? Mercy seat. So the mercy of God rests upon the testimony of God. So every time you share what God has done, you have ushered in the mercy seat of God and before somebody's life. This is the privilege of who we are, is carrying the mercy of the Lord and introducing people to the mercy of the Lord. And every testimony you have of how God healed, delivered your own story, of God transformed your life, that story ushers in the mercy of God for people to draw from, all right? Saul had lost regard for the presence of the Lord and in the process, the Philistines actually came and stole the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's a disastrous story, but it's actually very funny. They, they, they took, you know, how do you steal God? They, they just did. They somehow, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it to one city, and in that city, all the men broke out with hemorrhoids. I didn't write this story, I'm just reporting it. <laughs> They took the ark to another, another city, and everybody broke out with hemorrhoids there. I think it was finally the third city. The men of the city said, no, <laughs> you're not bringing that here. <laughs> Rumor had gotten around. It was, the presence caused a lot of pain for some people. So, <laughs> It's hard not to visualize, but I'm working at it. So they put it in the house of their god, Dagon. And they got up in the morning and their God, Dagon, had fallen on his face before the ark. So they set it upright. I don't remember how many times. I think it was at least two times, if not three. Next day again, it was on its face before the presence. Finally, when it fell, the head fell off and the hands fell off because uh, everything bows to the name of the Lord. So they lost regard for the presence. So David finally did a search, found where it was when he became king, and he made this, he, he, he wanted the presence brought back into his city now, the city of Jerusalem. And so he uh, he got everybody ready. Everybody was all excited. They went and found it. They got this brand new Rolls Royce of ox carts. <laughs> and a couple of really fine oxen. And they put the the presence on this ox cart, and they began to sing and dance and celebrate as God was being restored to the city of Jerusalem, as the presence of the Lord was coming back. And on the journey, an oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out to steady it, and God killed him. He died because he had such such disrespect for the presence that he would try to handle it. The presence is never to be handled he's God he is not a tool that we use to bring about revivalist oriented goals accomplishments he's God David was extremely frustrated angry depressed probably and he took the ark and he put it in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom And people kept coming to David saying, hey, Obed-Edom is really a happy guy. (laughs) Everything about his life is flourishing. And David says, oh, bummer. I mean, good for him, but bummer for me. And as all smart people do, they eventually go to the owner's manual. And when he opened the owner's manual, he found out that the presence of the Lord was never to rest upon something we created. It was never to be moved by something we would make. No ministry we can create will hold or contain the presence of the Lord. This may be contrary to what you thought, but the presence of the Lord does not rest upon ministries. It rests upon people. So David got the priests together. He trained them. You can imagine if you're the guys that are assigned to carry the presents. The last guy that came close died. And David says, it's going to work out good, I promise. And they get the presents, the Ark of the Covenant, on their shoulders. And they begin to sing and to dance. And they took, I think it was seven steps. They stopped and sacrificed to the Lord. Some say they actually did that every seven steps. They would stop and sacrifice an oxen or whatever. So you can imagine that's quite a long walk. From here to there, every seven steps, they would stop and give this offering to the Lord. But all of Israel showed up. They lined the streets for this extraordinary event of bringing the ark of God's presence back into the city of Jerusalem. This has profound implications for you and for me. I'm going to go way ahead in the story and give you a secret. If you don't know already, this will help for this story to make sense for you. This tabernacle, this tent that David built on Mount Zion, which is not a mountain. It's a little pimple in the earth, a little rise in the earth within the walls of Jerusalem. This little tent that he pitched, there's no indication of its size, all we know is that God was there and the priests were there. David actually constructed something in a, a worship routine that was unheard of. You have to remember now, in their mindset, note, let's just say that this table, that represents the ark. No one comes in before the presence of the Lord, nobody, except the high priest one day a year on the day of atonement. He carries a basin of blood to atone for the sins of Israel for one more year. It doesn't wipe out sin. It doesn't cover sin. It postpones the penalty for another year because the blood of bulls and goats does not satisfy the issue. And so the priest would go in one day of the year. So David comes along and says, God's not interested in the blood of bulls and goats. He's looking for the sacrifices of the heart, the praise, the yieldedness of the heart. That's what God's looking for. That's the offering he wants. He doesn't want the animals. He wants the heart. So David comes along in what would appear to be a complete violation of the law he's under. But if you'll study this, you'll find that both Nathan and Gad, I believe it's mentioned in 1 uh, in Chronicles 25, said both Nathan and Gad heard from the Lord the same thing, and they confirmed David's prophetic insight that God was not interested in the blood of bulls and goats, but it actually was looking for the sacrifices of the heart. And they confirmed it. So what they do? They shifted everything from one priest, the high priest, going one day of the year before the presence to where all priests could come every day. And they would come not with the blood of bulls and goats, but they would come with songs. They would come with decrees, with praise, with intercessions. And that was now acceptable. Why is this important? Because that is the prototype of the New Testament church. That was called the tabernacle of David. In Amos 9, there's this prophecy that says, in the last days, God's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. All right? So here's the tabernacle of David. Amos comes along sometime later. He prophesies, there's a day coming. God's going to rebuild this thing. Fast forward. Peter stands up. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of a sudden, we have this shift taking place. In Acts, the book of Acts, we have all these Jews that are being saved. I don't know if you know this, but when the Lord uh, Jesus told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel for 10 years, the church stayed in Jerusalem. And they didn't go into all the world until persecution sent them. So it was finally in persecution, they went into all the world, and now we have all these Gentiles being saved. They didn't know what to do. So in Acts 15, the head honchos of the church of that era, Peter and all these guys, Paul, they meet together and they try to compare notes. Interestingly, one of the things they did is they start comparing testimonies. Peter says, you know, I was just sitting on the rooftop. I was praying. I had this vision. God lowered a uh, a sheet full of animals, unclean animals, and he told me to eat it. And I said, "I'm not eating that. That's not clean." And, and the Lord says, "Don't call unclean what I call clean." And he gave him that same vision several times. So Peter shares his story. Peter talks about Paul talks about going somewhere and the Spirit of God being poured out on people that that hadn't even adopted any of the Jewish rules yet. And so they're comparing notes, and they come to the conclusion. And finally, James, after hearing all this, James is kind of the head guy in Jerusalem, as I understand it. James comes along, and he says, Hey, everything you guys are talking about is is in the book. And they say, Well, where is it? He says, It's in Amos 9. He says, For the prophets declared that in the last days God would rebuild the tabernacle of David. What is he doing? David experiences something with the presence. Amos prophesies it's coming back. James gets a hold of that passage when they are discussing what do we do with all these Gentiles that are coming into the church. And James stands up and says, Hey, I think I know what's going on. God's rebuilding something that existed a long time ago. Now, why? what's the connection between Gentiles coming to the Lord and a worship community? It's because in the Amos 9 passage, he said, I will rebuild the fallen booth of David. And then he says... That the Gentiles, that the nations of the earth would know his name. And so there's this phrase in there that connects worship to the conversion of the masses. Are you catching this? I, I, I'm, I'm covering like, you know, a thousand miles and we're flying fast. So just kind of hold on tight here. So here, the Lord actually connects the worship expression. He says, actually, in the, in the Amos passage, he says, that they might possess the remnant of Edom. Do you remember who Edom was? Edom. Edom is the land of Esau. All right? So we've got Jacob and Esau. We've got Jew. We've got Gentile. And he says, this is being built. This is being restored. A worshiping community. Why? Because God wants to possess the land of Edom. So interestingly, worship being restored is what brings the breakthrough in the heavenlies for the massive conversion of Gentiles. In fact, you know what? Let's just push this a little bit farther, which I'm glad you asked me to. In Isaiah 62, I'm going way out of myself on this. We'll we'll, we'll back up in a moment and close by reading the actual passage. But in Isaiah 62, he he says, "'Go through, go through the gates, Clear the way for the people. Remove the stones and the dusty rubble. Cast up a highway before God. All right, picture this. Go through, go through the gates. The gates, just a few verses earlier, this is Isaiah 62, verse 10. Just a few verses earlier in Isaiah 60, verse 19, he says, the gates are praise and the walls are salvation. So remember, we're looking at context. We're not just looking at prophetic themes, themes all through the Bible, at the context. The context is the gates are praise. So in Isaiah 62, he looks at the people of God, he says, go through the gates, which is what? Praise. In the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, of heaven, what are the gates made out of? Pearls. The gate is made out of one huge pearl. That's a weird picture. What are pearls made out of? How are they formed? Irritation. Irritation. The sacrifice of praise. That which is contrary to how I feel, how I think, and how my circumstances are doing. In that moment, I exalt the name of the Lord. Guess what? A gate is being formed. And he says, go through the gate. What does go through the gate do? It clears the way for the people. It removes the dusty rubble. It turns this pathway into a highway. Now, I hope you're getting the picture here. This should get you excited. Because when the the church becomes a worshiping community, it is as though every time you raise your hands and sing songs of praise and honor and thanksgiving, and worship to the Lord, you are like a spiritual bulldozer that clears the way in the unseen realm for the masses to come to Christ. That's, yeah, come on. That's why whenever there is truly a worshiping church, I don't mean just a a church that sings worship songs excitedly. There is a difference. When there is truly the manifest presence of the Lord upon his people, you'll always find masses of people getting saved. Let's read some Bible, all right? right, Second Samuel chapter 6. <clears throat> David gathered. Again, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. Choice men of Israel, 30,000. He arose, went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, bring up the ark. They set the Ark of the God, of God uh, verse 3, on a new cart. This is where Yuza touched it and he died. If we can drop all the way down, verse 9, it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Verse 12, it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom uh, because, and all that belongs to him because of the ark. So, verse um Thir- uh, the last part of verse 12, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom to the city of David with gladness. Now, this is an interesting concept here. He brings up the ark with gladness. How many of you know he's afraid? Psalms 2 gives us an interesting concept a marriage of subjects. He says, Rejoice with trembling. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place, the tabernacle of David uh, that he had erected for it. Jump all the way down to verse 21. We've got one more really vital point that I want to establish for you. So what happens? David is dancing wildly. What did he do? He took off his kingly robes, his kingly garments. He set them aside. He put on a linen ephod, which is basically like a priest's undergarment. And he's dancing wildly before the presence of the Lord. Please notice he danced before the presence, not after. Wherever David dancing, wherever dancing David went, the presence went. Anyone can rejoice after he shows up. David rejoiced and God would show up. So he did this all the way into the city. Michael is not there. So I ask you, all of Israel is there. Everyone's there except for Michael, his wife. She's in the palace. She looks out the window. She sees David dancing wildly. And when he comes home, she says, well, better look at it, verse uh, 21. David said to Michael, I'm sorry, uh, verse 20 is the one we need. David returned to bless his household. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today. And anybody detect sarcasm involved here? <laughs> How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord... This, is, this, this comment is below the belt. This is the best comeback I've been able to find in the scriptures. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father. Ooh, ooh. And all his household. Ooh, spare no punches, David. My goodness. <laughs> to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. Verse 22 I will be even more undignified than this. I will be humble in my own sight. Interesting. To be undignified before people is often to take on humility for ourselves. He says, but by the servants of whom you have spoken, I'll be held in honor. Here's a key verse. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. All right, here's the deal. Michael's in the palace. All Israel is lining the streets, but she is separate. Do you understand how foolish worship looks for someone who is not a part of it? It's normal to look with criticism as something you're not a part of. So if you ever feel critical about something... Make sure you have a a divine perspective and not one who is critiquing from a distance. David mocks David, says how shameless, uh, you were shameless today before your servants. And David came with an answer and said, listen, I'm humble in my own eyes. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. In fact, you've not seen anything yet. I'll be a lot more undignified than this. Uh, Sweetheart, this has just started (laughs) this whole dancing routine. We just got this going. So if, if that was tough, you can hardly wait till tomorrow, you know. And then the closing comment was, and, and Michael had no children to the day of her death. Now, it's possible she had no children because there was no longer intimacy between David and Michael. It's also possible she had no children because the Lord closed the womb. Regardless, take that concept. She despised worship and became barren. Fast forward, Isaiah 54, because the time, I've already gone over, so... Isaiah 54 verse 1 says this, Shout for joy, barren one, you who have borne no child, because the sons of the desolate woman, the barren woman, will become more numerous than the married woman. So here we have in contrast, despising worship brings barrenness. But to a barren person, celebrating who God is, Encountering God in worship extravagantly releases a fruitfulness that causes you to pass up everyone who has been having children all along. Extravagant worship is the expression of the believer. Let's pray on this one. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege of celebrating your goodness, not just as a token thing, not just with night songs, but with our whole being, our minds. To love you with all of our heart, all of our minds, and all of our strength every part of us engaged in honoring who you are. And I pray that you would increase our awareness of this, that you're doing in the earth today, that you might possess the remnant of Edom, that the nations would know. We pray this for the honor of the name of Jesus.
0: Lord, hallelujah. That was rich. That was good. So uh, have a few more minutes. So we'll do like we always do. The name of this session was the prototype for normal Christianity, so we'll have we'll talk about some of the video highlights that I heard, and I'm sure you heard them. Probably he starts with Proverbs fourteen four, where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increases by the strength of the ox, and so, you know, um, if you it's just going to be messy. Revival's going to be messy. And uh, he talked about in Second Samuel 6 that Saul had lost regard for the presence of God. And so I thought we should talk about that a little bit tonight and see just how much regard we have for the presence. Now, about a week ago, we had gold come into the auditorium, and it's over here by the wall, and we did, we aren't touching it. I mean... It's not that we can't touch it; it's just we're not vacuuming it or cleaning it. We're leaving it. Um, <clears throat> gold is something that's been happening all over the body of Christ for a long time. where golds appearing and so forth, and in different ways. And I've I heard in Argentina, you know, it was the walls were covered in gold in one church and gold dust and and different things. But I think that God gave us a little test a little trial of what we would do uh with something unusual like that and um so and see how we would regard it so you know there would be some ways that we could react that would not be um um that might not be the best way to react if we want to demonstrate to God that we have a we have a regard for the supernatural, we have a regard and it's okay with us to have unusual things happen in church and and we're okay with revival, Lord, and we're okay with it being messy and so forth um one way not to react would be to try to put the gold dust or it's not really dust it's more like flakes. And uh, to put it over in the natural. In other words, well, a person or a bug did it or, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But let me tell you, no person did that. You know, no person did that. Hallelujah. And no, to me, to say that an ant did it is. It takes me more faith to believe that an ant took little gold flakes and brought them in and lined them up perfectly than to just believe God did it. Hallelujah. So that might be a not a way to react, to be indifferent to it. Like, in other words, oh, yeah, I see it. Okay. I might ask this. Did you think of it after you heard of it? How many of you had any thoughts about it this week? Hallelujah. I think that, uh, did you get excited? You don't have to answer, but did you get excited? Uh, Did you have a wait-and-see attitude? That might not be the best reaction. Did you have a wait-and-see attitude? Did you not even go over there and look? Just walked on out and, you know, that probably wasn't showing God that you had a regard for the presence or a regard for the supernatural. So, uh, we don't want to have a Saul problem. He either lost his regard for the presence or he never had it. Maybe we don't know which one, but we just don't want to be there. So, uh, And then he moved on. Brother Bill did and talked about how unbelievers got hemorrhoids in the presence of God. I think unbelievers get uncomfortable in the presence of God today. And I think that hemorrhoids in the New Testament translation, New Covenant would be somebody that's not a believer is going to be uncomfortable in the presence of God. Another things he talked about was how the, the God Dagon fell off, you know, and uh, how false gods have to bow in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. The devil has to bow, and demon spirits have to leave, and devils have to leave people. Hallelujah. And there are things in our soul, not our spirit, but in our soul, our mind, will, and emotions that are going to have to bow if we want to continue to have God's presence in in our life, there's things in our house that will have to go. If we want to continue to, if we want God's presence in our house, there's things that we will have to let go of and things that we'll have to bow. If we want like attitudes and stuff, if we want God's presence to be there. And then he talked about the man that tried to handle the presence. In other words, he reached out because he didn't have respect for the presence. And, um, that had to do with uh he mentioned that the man had tried to control the presence of god and uh you know i think that's probably pretty common for pastors to maybe try to control or contain the presence and and uh we did something very unusual tonight we didn't plan it it just happened at prayer this evening and um and we, we, uh, I, I don't even remember what we were praying towards the end, but then we just said, let's go around the room and decree something that we're okay with, uh, something supernatural that we're okay with. And so people, you know, they started at first in pretty general things about healing or, Stuff and then I said, "Well, let's go out there deeper." And so we decreed some things that we're okay with if it happens in this church. And we uh, said, "I don't know if anybody remembers some of the things, but we were we were okay if uh, the piano started playing by itself. We're okay with that, Lord. We're okay. I just remember that one. I don't remember. Does anybody remember anything else that we just two or three do? Yeah, that was one. Anybody remember? Man. <laughs> Oh that was way out there. Somebody said I'm okay if a preacher from somewhere else is translated in here and to preach. Mm. <laughs> Don't get too enthusiastic now. <laughs> Hallelujah. We were okay with gemstones. And uh, uh Pastor Pastor Moss actually said he had a witness. We showed it to him. Hallelujah. Okay. We'll move on from there. But you know at home, think about supernatural things that you've heard about before or that you hadn't heard about, and just tell the Lord, I'm okay with that happening in church. Hallelujah. <clears throat> and then he talked about Obed Edom, who welcomed, respected, and took care of the presence of the Lord, and uh, i the the what I came back with, the moral of that part, is that the presence of God in your life will cause you to flourish. So I want the presence of God in my life. And uh, I'm not flourishing to the degree I could flourish. So let's have some more presence in my life. Um, And then he mentioned that the presence is never to rest upon something we created, like a program. In other words, we cannot start a program and say here in the church, and say, okay, we'll do this in the presence of God. We know we're going to have to let the presence of God be in charge, I guess is the best way to say it. We're going to have to let God be in charge. We're going to have to hold, let Holy Ghost do it. If it's messy, if it's uh, inconvenient, we're going to have to let... Oh, somebody said, I'm okay with the service going for several hours. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Some of you are going to... Let, let's everybody go, stretch. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Um, then he mentioned that presence rests upon people, not ministries. Hallelujah. Maybe that was more for preachers than it was for... Um, he talked about how worship is connected to the salvation of the masses. I'm thankful. I'm really thankful. Let me say this. I'm really thankful that we have got another level of worship in this church. We're even having worship uh, nights. Okay, hallelujah. We're having worship nights. And then worship brings breakthrough in the heavenlies. Oh boy, I tell you what, the best thing he said was, every time we raise our hands, we praise, we declare, we decree, it's like a spiritual bulldozer. Hallelujah. Plowing out the mess in Tuscaloosa County. Um, and then another really you ought to put three stars by this one is David danced before the presence, not after the presence. I think we need to talk about that because I'm going to tell you, we were taught opposite of that and we taught it opposite of that. And thank God, God, you know, sometimes you walk in all the lights you've got. And so we're not blaming anybody or anything because the people we know that taught us loved God and they walked in all the light they had, but thank God, God turned on more light. You know, uh, but what we were taught is you don't dance until the Spirit gets on you. Or it'll be flesh. But that is totally opposite of what the truth is that was demonstrated there is that we dance and then the presence of god comes and you know one of the things we need to get okay with is uh is dancing remember in samuel he pointed out how michael when david danced before the lord with all his might and you know he wasn't doing the charismatic two-step he was boy he was and if you weren't don't know what that is that's because you weren't in charismatic days. you knows what the charismatic two-step is, don't you? How Would you like to demonstrate? <laughs> <laughs> he pur- did you purge that? <laughs> anyway, praise God. Well, anyway, he was but I'm telling you, he was dancing. It was a messy dance. Amen. And so, um, Michael was very sarcastic about that. I read somewhere one time that Sarcasm is always connected to hate, and so uh, that's something. So, Michael, she had a sarcasm problem, maybe a hate problem, but she also had her mainest problem was she had a pride problem, and she talked all about you know she had bought into this, I'm a I'm a king's daughter and I'm a king's wife, and she had really gotten. Uh, you know, yeah, a royalty thing about her that was carnal. And uh, so she'd got had, had a pride problem. And uh, David said, I will be humble in my own sight. And, and let me just say this, and and I'm, I'm going to try to say this is not, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or anything. But, you know, <laughs> if we, being in a church like this, can't dance, we either got a broke leg or a gimpy leg or we got a pride problem. Now, you may not have ever thought that you had a pride problem. Maybe you said, well, that's just not my style. That's what Mark Brzee said when Rodney Howard Brown brought laughter to the Rhema, you know, groups. Um, hallelujah. We've got to go to that next level of freedom and be humble in our own sight. Now, there's just one way to get rid of pride. And you can't pray it away. You can't repent pride away. There's one way to get rid of pride. Does anybody want to take a guess how you have to get rid of pride? Whether it's pride in the, like, well, I just can't, I never can say I'm sorry because when people can't say they're sorry, they got a pride problem. And there's just one way to get rid of it. Does anybody want to take a little guess? No. Does anybody want to take another guess? Do it. You just, if you've got a pride problem, you can't say, I'm sorry. You just have to make yourself. The next time you goof up, mess up, say something, you have to make yourself go say, I'm sorry. And that breaks it. You might not break all of it the first time, but you say, you do it, if you make yourself so accountable that every time you mess up, every time you yell at your husband, every time you, you know, and, you know, we say, well, that's not even sin to yell at your husband. (laughs) Well, hallelujah. you know it's like well that word that word I that word I say that's not a sin hallelujah praise God well you might need to you know hallelujah (laughs) but there's only one way to get rid of that pride and if and, and that's to do it and there's only one way to get rid of any other kind of pride well, if, 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 you can't, you know, if you can't lift your hands there's only, and there's a lot of people and you may have started that way when you got baptized in the Holy Ghost you first went into a church where they lifted their hands and you were like oh my lord I can't do this but the only way to get rid of it is to do it and now it's just like that is just the easiest thing in the world Hallelujah. So we'll we'll get off that real quick. Lesson number one, because that was all just under the highlights from the video. Lesson number one, that's all we're going to cover, is what happens when the world starts coming in. That's the name of it. And under that, he pointed out, this is very short, revival is messy. And when God's presence collides with people, it can produce some unusual and uncomfortable things. Say, I'm okay, I'm okay. with the unusual. I'm okay, I'm okay with being uncomfortable. With being uncomfortable. Um, we have to be aware of what we are welcoming when we want to see our city saved. We have to count the cost. You receive encounters from the God to be an encounter. Um, there's a story in Luke that talks about that they threw a wedding feast and they invited all the prim and proper of society and the, you know, to come. And they all had an excuse. Remember, everybody had an excuse. And then he said, and, and the the Lord of the Feast said, made him angry. And he said, go out into the highways and the hedges. And he said, bring in the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So I looked at that and it, I thought, the poor and the sick. Bring the poor and bring the sick. And that, I believe, God's instructions to us. Because the poor and the sick are already set up for a life-changing encounter with God. And that's what God wants us to do. That's why we have to close the prayer and healing center. Bring in the poor and the sick. Um, God will connect us with people who need a lot of help. And their lives are broken. And they got lots of messy situations. Would you all agree with that? They don't have the right language. We're probably not going to like some of the words they use. They may smell a little bad. They may be a little bit inebriated when they arrive. Yeah, we had that, didn't we? Already at Tuscaloosa Prayer and Healing Center. Uh, they may be all uh, all those things, uh, but we have when we cross their path, we've crossed it for a reason. It's a supernatural setup from God. Now, Bill said something, not on this video, but several months ago, I heard him say this, and it really shocked me. He said, revival always begins with the poor and works its way up, or the poor, however you want to say it. The revival begins with the poor and works its way up, which was really shocking to us because we've spent years trying to reach the rich and influential. That's the M.O. of... The camp we came out of is reach the rich and influential. And so opposite. There we go again. Oh, Lord, thank you for straightening us out. So let's name some people, and then we'll go. We'll just do this real quickly. Don't hesitate. Some people, not specific people, but like name some people in society that we could start ministering to right now based on this go after the drug addicts good prostitutes homeless drunks the jails unwed mothers i wrote down beggars we've been seeing this same couple down here on this side of the road and the test closest sheriff he he pulled up and he is very nice to him, and he tried, Steve was pointing, go that way, go down that way. This, he was sending them to Sam's Club. That's where they, you know, congregate. But the next time we saw them, they on this side of the road. I think they, but, you know, this is the most dangerous intersection, one of them in Alabama, right there. And uh, I'm sure, and they, <sighs> while the sheriff is talking to him, she's in a wheelchair talking on her cell phone. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> they're messy <laughs> it's messy uh, anyway anybody else got anything else how about section 8 housing anybody you got any other ideas so we could start soon hallelujah praise God thank you Lord Jesus Lord we give you praise and glory does anybody need prayer tonight if you need prayer tonight come on up we're going to pray if you don't
1: we'll let pastor come and amen